so I've kind of a long, a, a long story. So my, so I started off with a, I got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. I chose counseling psychology um, because in my doc program, I mean, you know, when you're going through school, you're immediately thrown in there working with clients. But when you're doing executive coaching and the person you're working with is far more, you know, on paper, far more successful than you are, it's difficult to tell that person how to navigate their relationships at work when I've accomplished nothing at work and they're a CEO. And you have to be a little bit deluded in your own, your own ability to, to like convince yourself that you belong there. You know, so I've been doing it for almost 15 years now. Um, so now I would say probably all of them. I think the ones that I do the most work in, it would be construction still and healthcare. So, so I would say my work with organizations falls into three buckets. One bucket is pre-hire, pre-hire which is assessment. All right, David, I am so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for being here. This is something I've been really looking forward to. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to talking with you also. Yeah, I know the the topic of industrial organizational psychology is kind of a hot topic, and it's something that a lot of my audience members have been wanting to know more about. But before we kind of get into that, how did you first get exposed to industrial organiza organizational psychology? Like, What was your experience like when you first heard of it? So I've kind of a long, a, a long story. So my, so I started off with a, I got a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And I, I just wanted to be like a traditional therapist. Uh, and when I graduated, that was 2005. Uh, no, no, I, I started the program in 2005. I graduated in 07 and everybody's like clamoring for a job. And I was like, well, what? I don't know what to do. And I, for no good reason, other than people I looked up to got PhDs, I was like, I should go get a PhD. <laughs> um, and so I went on that path. Um, and I knew that I was more suited for kind of the walking, I would think about like the walking wounded versus the, you know, more significant acuity. And, and I didn't want to work with really intense mental illness. And so I was, I chose counseling psychology, uh, which is probably like the first indicator that I maybe wasn't totally suited for traditional therapy work. Um, because in my doc program, I mean, you know, when you're going through school, you're immediately thrown in there working with clients. And I worked at a, you know, uh, in my master's program, I worked at a at a boys' home. I worked at a community mental health center in Los Angeles, which were pretty intense populations. And then in my doc program, which was in, in, uh, at the University of Denver, I was again working at community mental health centers. And I was just sort of noticing that I was emotionally tired at the end of the day. My supervisors were, I felt totally overwhelmed. They were beleaguered, felt like they were underpaid. You know, I had a conversation with one of them. Uh, it, who was at the, I felt like was at I me. Mean, I really looked up to her and she's at the top of the field and was, had a very strong reputation. She was a training director, um, you know, for a pre-doc internships. And I asked her how much she made. And I think the number she said, it was like $85,000 a year. And this was someone that had accomplished a tremendous amount. And I mean, she was at the top of the like, nationally known. And I'm yeah. going like, yeah. man, uh, you know, I'm going to go to school two years, master's, five years, doctorate. And if I'm lucky and I'm at the top of my game, I'm going to make $88,000 a year if I do, if I take that path. And I know that your other option is to go private practice, but 
I was still aware of feeling emotionally taxed by a day of clinical work. And I was fortunate enough, I think it was my, my second year, I worked for the State Employee Assistance Program um, uh, for Colorado, and they had a counseling program. And they also, the, my supervisor was also a coach and a consultant. And so I said, hey, would you mind if I did, if I do a consulting, that, like, can I, tr- can I try coaching someone or doing the consulting work? And he was like, yeah, sure you can. And I remember it very clearly. I had one day where I had somebody that was, um, it was, had OCD, but in a very intense way, in an overwhelming way for me, like I was sort of, you know, at a certain point, at least for me, the treatment of intense diagnosis is oftentimes just emo- like trying to add structure and regulate people's emotions and reducing their anxiety, but you're not really able to touch the underlying driver. And that I remember feeling like I'm making no impact with this person. And then the same day, I had a public defender who was trying to find meaning in his work and navigate a relationship with his wife and, you know, sort of be all things to all people in his world. But this was a very high functioning, very engaged person. And I, I left that meeting, which was technically coaching. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. Wow. And so at the start, I'm sorry, I'll stop, I'll stop talking. But so at the start of my doc program, my uh, dissertation was going to be on spirituality and meaning making you know we knew that or it's pretty clear that having faith um, has a curative effect when you get when you're taking care of someone who is sick or if you're sick yourself but the mechanism behind that's unclear that's what i wanted to study but i realized that it wasn't marketable if i wanted to go into this consulting world so i shifted my dissertation topic to corporate culture so that i could create a of study that would help me get a job later on. So anyway, that's how I made the transition. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. I mean, and it, it, I think it speaks to the incredible opportunity that you had and it was an opportunity that you had and you you just kind of jumped right into it and it seemed to kind of fit your personality and kind of what you were looking for. And I love that you speak about, I think some of the, maybe the negative aspects of the therapy world and some of the things that people don't talk about as much, right. In terms of the salary or in terms of how much mm-hmm. you can easily get burnt out and all of the different things that come all come along with that. What for you, you know, right when you, I guess you graduated with your doctorate, what was the transition then into the, the field then for you in terms of getting that more of that experience? Yeah. So I, well, so I was lucky. So I was married at the time and my wife, did well financially. So I wasn't panicked about money. Um, and so I started, I started the Colorosi group, which was a consulting firm. I mean, a group of one. And then I started Colorosi counseling at the same time. It was much easier for me to get full with the counseling practice, but the goal was always to transfer, you know, to move to the consulting work. So I, I, um, so I live in Denver. Where are you located? Are you I'm in Chicago. Or, or, uh, Midwest, Chicago, Midwest. Yeah. So, the in Denver, one of the nicer areas is called Cherry Creek, and so I sublet. I, I mean, I, I didn't sublet in, in an office, like a very small office there. Um, you know, I only work like two or three days a week, and I, you know, I think I think my original rate was like a hundred bucks an hour, um, but at this time I was not I was not licensed. I was still being supervised, which I can talk to you about in a second. But oh, yeah. I started off at a at hundred bucks an hour, and I did okay. And then I moved it to one hundred and forty an hour, and I did way better. 
it was like I was in the fancy area. I had a PhD and I was charging more and I was able to fill that practice up pretty quickly. And so I did that. And then while I was doing that work, uh, like I said, I, I did my dissertation on corporate culture, in particular corporate safety culture. And I made a tool that evaluates whether or not your company has, has a safe culture. And I was able to sell that into construction companies. And so that's how I ended up getting my foot in the door in the consulting world. Wow. Wow. That, that's pretty neat. I, yeah. I think it's great because it's like one of those things where I think the research that I've done in terms of industrial organizational psychology, for me, it has never been quite clear. And it always seemed like the people that were really into it were only doing sort of like these contract positions or like, you know, part time, you know, job positions. But it, it seemed like for you, you know, you started from the ground up and you were really able to kind of work your way into it. And it seemed like a lot of it had to do with maybe some private practice skills and some marketing skills to really, you know, advocate for yourself that you knew what you were doing and that this was something that other companies or organizations needed. And so how did you kind of, I guess, sell yourself in, in that way uh, for other people to start kind of paying attention to that? Yeah, I, well, at the time, I didn't know about IO psychology. Um, and I still, by the way, I think the best skill set to be a consultant is counseling psychology or clinical psychology, um, personally. So I, I still think it's like, I think I had the right education. I think the skill that I have, which is maybe not a skill, but is valuable is hubris because, you know, when you're, at least for me, when I was doing clinical work, uh, I was emboldened or I was, I was, uh, maybe more confident when I was working with somebody who I knew I was functioning at a higher level. Than. Like I can give you advice about reducing your anxiety if I have less anxiety than you, but when you're doing executive coaching, and the person you're working with is far more, you know, on paper, far more successful than you are. It's difficult to tell that person how to navigate their relationships at work when I've accomplished nothing at work and they're a CEO. And you have to be a little bit deluded in your own, your own ability to, to like convince yourself that you belong there, you know? Yeah. So I think right off the bat, that was like being a little bit, I don't think I'm an, I'm not, I don't think I'm an entrepreneur, but I think I am uh, maybe more comfortable, or I was maybe more comfortable to put myself in that setting a little bit than the yeah. average psychologist, which does that answer and, the question? Yeah, no, it, it really yeah. does. And I'm curious to know, like what, what sectors or fields have you been able to kind of utilize some of those skills for you? So now like I've been doing it and I, so I graduated in 2012 and I started the Colorosi group, the consulting company officially in 2011, you know, so I've been doing it for almost 15 years now. Um, so now I would say uh, probably all of them, I think the ones I do the most work in, it would be construction still and healthcare. I do a lot of work with physicians or physician leaders. Um, and then, you know, the construction industry, construction, mining, those kinds of industries, there's a lot of these companies get very big and there's a lot of leadership opportunity. And so I think those companies in those industries oftentimes are, putting money towards leadership development pretty intentionally. Got you. Okay. That makes sense. I, yeah. I love what you mentioned in terms of like, it, it sounded to me a little bit like imposter syndrome of like, okay, I'm doing this thing, but you know, like it's, it's kind of evolving as I, as I go through it. 
mm -hmm. then you you know you mentioned how like for for someone receiving it who's like in that company or in that organization like I think we often think that they don't need that or like they don't have the skills that we already have or that we've been taught. And I absolutely yeah. agree with you in that clinical psychology, counseling psychology, there's so many different skill sets that were taught in graduate school that can be applicable in so many different settings. How yeah. was it in terms of, uh, you know, for you, is there like a, a favorite type of person that you enjoy working with or a company or organization that you enjoy working with? Or what about the, the career do you love? Yeah. So, so I, so first of all, as, as far as the type of person I like to work with, it's the same as when I was doing clinical work. I like people that are anxious. Okay. I have a, I have a harder time working with people that like on this, on the, if I think like a continuum from being depressed or dysthymic to somebody being anxious or energized to me, when somebody is agitated or reactive or elevated, you know, anxiety drives behavior. So it's, for me, it's much easier to correct or address, or they're more motivated for change. Whereas when somebody is disinterested in coaching or disinterested in therapy, that that's always harder for me. Yeah. So, you know, and in the, and in the, which I like about um, doing consulting work or working with leaders is they're very motivated and it's, and it's a different, um, so I don't have a specific company or industry. I would just say in general, leaders that are motivated to progress are a lot more outcome oriented, I think, than like you would see in a, in a, in a clinical or a counseling practice. I, well, I was curious to know in terms of like when you're working with these organizations and companies, is it sort of this like ongoing relationship sort of, is it like kind of a, maybe a contract basis or is it, is, is there, are they giving you perhaps specific problems where you go in and you're maybe doing some sort of analysis or some sort of assessment and then you're individually working with people or how does that kind of look like? Yeah. So, so I would say my work with organizations falls into three buckets. One bucket is pre-hire, pre-hire, which is assessment, just probably half of what I do. Give a battery of tools. They take, you know, I do an interview, I give them a battery of tools or I'll do like a simulation with them. And then I write a report that says, Hey, this person's a good fit but has this characteristic or, you know, this is what development might look like for this person. So that's one piece of it. Oftentimes that leads to coaching, which is kind of the second bucket of things that I do would be, I would put it under the category of training. So that's individual coaching or it's, you know, um, topic specific training. You're going to do a training on emotional intelligence or a training on cognitive agility or a training on, you know, whatever conflict resolution, Right. Or in that, the, I guess the, the adjacent training bucket would be process related training. So how do we do team building or a strategic planning session with this group, right? Where it's not like teach this thing, but it's about facilitating the conversation. And then the last bucket would be organization wide kind of OD stuff. That's where you're doing like um, yeah, uh, change management or scenario planning or network analysis, you know, and that's probably 20% of what I do. I don't think my percentage is oh, okay. added up there, but roughly <laughs> that's the breakdown. I got you. Okay. Okay. No, very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there something where that in terms of kind of where you see the field heading, like where you, maybe even where you see yourself heading in terms of certain aspirations in the specific field that you can kind of picture and imagine? That's a good question. Where I see the field, it's, I guess I have two... I think that the feet, 
I don't know if this is in particular IO psychology, but I could just, I'll just talk generally about psychology. I have been frustrated or dis, I, I'm, an, I'm annoyed, I'm like, I'm annoyed a little bit with the psychologists in general or the, the mental health practitioners in general, because I feel like we don't always do a good job of standing by our training when we're evaluating dynamics with people. And I feel like we are uh, sliding to a place where sort of just, where we're just sort of just pandering to the milieu. We're just pandering to right. social media. And it's like, I'm not sure that that's what we actually believe. And I'll give you some examples about like, like the, the one that's standing out to me is this idea of work from home. So, you know, Adam Grant, Simon Sinek, everybody during COVID was like, and they're still sort of beating the drum of work from home is fantastic. It makes people happier and that's what we should do. And I think that if they were intellectually honest, they would recognize that it's not a good thing long-term for the culture of organizations. And then as a result, the global satisfaction of these people. And I think they know that, but it's unpopular right now to say, get back to work. And so I don't think that they get, they don't tell a full story about it. They just sort of say, Hey, let people do what they want. Cause they're more fulfilled. Like it's a very individual focused thing. Mm -hmm. The other example I have in my mind that drives me crazy is this idea of, um, which I, I have heard my entire career that, uh, impact is more important than intent. Like, every, mm -hmm. have you heard that language before? Right. I have. Yeah. And everybody believes it. And when you say it, it sounds good, but I don't think that it's how clinicians think what mm -hmm. matters. It, I think it's very important to a therapist. What mm -hmm. objectively happened, you know, the, the, the most common therapeutic uh, approach would be, I think is CBT. I, I don't know if it's the most popular. I think it's the most popular. I don't have the data behind that, but a lot of people think about pathology in that way. And when you go to see a therapist and you say, hey, I had this event, the therapist is going to work on what was the event that triggered you? What was your emotional reaction? How did you behave? And what was the consequence? Was that a good chain of events? The therapist mm -hmm. is trying to help the individual regulate intentionally was my response to that stimulus appropriate or not like so clinically we value very much what actually happened the what we need to know if i told you i got in a fight with my wife and i thought and she reacted in an unreasonable way your first thought would be well, what was the fight about was it really unreasonable or was it like to, to act like yeah. what happened doesn't matter and it's just about the impact is yeah. like to me it's insincere do you know mm -hmm. what i mean and so i feel a little yeah. bit like that's the trend and I, and I think it's maybe more top of mind to me because doing work as a, like in the IO cycle in, in the consulting space, the, yeah. um, you know, companies hire me to do coaching because they want to change in performance. Right. So like they're going, this is the behavior we're seeing. It needs to change. Can you help this person? Which is a very different lens than if you're doing therapy. Because in therapy, the goal is improving well-being globally or satisfaction right. globally and so it's really easy to be like hey well if you like that then that's fine like no judgment you know unconditional positive regard like we're not you're not intervening with the same level of intensity i don't think in right. therapy as you might in 
the business world. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a lot more direct, you know, it's a lot more focused. And I think there can be, I think it probably opens up a lot of space for honesty and just being candid with your client about, Hey, this is what needs to be done. And perhaps, you know, I, I, I think in that there's a lot of transparency of like being able to collaborate in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking about it in terms of like, let's say for schooling, graduate school, what do you think would have been helpful for you in learning in graduate school that you wish you would have been able to just get to help you kind of on the trajectory that you're in right now? That's a great question. Um, that's a really good question. What, yeah, what do I... I I think there's, I think one thing that stand that like that stands out to me is the idea that um, I think there's a, at least for me, there's a thing in how I approach work or approach people where I will, and I'm thinking what I'm, what I'm reflecting on is, is sort of how I worked with my cohort and what that looks like moving forward. And I think that when you get into the program, at least for me, you know, I had a cohort of six people. Um, and you start off and you're like very connected to that group. And then as things progress, you sort of splinter and everybody's doing different things. And I feel like I didn't do as good a job as I should have maintaining those relationships a- afterwards. Cause I don't talk to anybody from my co it's been whatever a decade or so, but I don't have that. Those are really good people, clinicians I really valued, but I got, I was so focused on, I, I got to figure out my career and what I'm doing that you sort of move on without those relationships. And then now at this stage of the game, you know, I have different, like I have a different group that I consult or that I, but I, 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 I neglected those relationships. I think mm. in my sort of, you know, I did the same thing after high school. Like I, I'm not good at, yeah. at like staying on top of relationships. And I yeah. think that's, it's less about the field of psychology, but just stylistically for me, I wish I had done mm. that differently. Got you. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That kind of leads into my next question. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm thinking about like, for you, you know, like for me right now, I have supervisors, I have other people that I can go to for consultation and things like that. It seems like the, the space of, of IO and even what you specifically do is so niche that you may not have a lot of colleagues that you can go to, to perhaps consult or, and, and, and so forth. Do you feel like there's a network of, 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 people or mentors that you can go to to get advice or consultation in terms of what you do? I, yeah, so I do. So, um, so I work, I don't work. I started off on my own. Um, and then I was on my own. I joined a small boutique consulting firm. I went on my own again for a couple of years. And then I joined a company called CMA global. They're based in St. Louis, have offices in Kansas city and in Denver. And it's a, it's like a 45 person, 50 person firm. And I think 23 of us are psychologists and consultants. And so being the, like the reason why I joined the firm, there's a couple of reasons. One was I wanted to learn about assessments and get better at the kind of OD strategic planning, change management type of work. Um, and I wanted the, I, I needed what you're talking about. I needed the connection to people. So at CMA, you know, there's a Denver office that I go to every day that has psychologists in it. And then our whole firm gets together once a month for a full day where we calibrate on how we do coaching, how we do assessments. So I get a lot of that connection by being part of CMA. That's incredible. Is there any advice that you have for 
high schooler, you know, someone in college who's looking into going into this field, into this space, you know, what are some of the, maybe the classes that they should be thinking about or some of the steps that they should take to, to get into it? Uh, it's funny. I'm, I'm curious what you, what you say, how you view this. But for me, like if my, I have, I have two boys, uh, if they, you know, one's nine, the other one's um, five. So we got some time. But if they said they wanted to go to school and get a, get a bachelor's degree in psychology, which I did, I would be, man, let them do whatever they want, but I would be opposed to it because, because I think, I, I, I think it's, it's like, you could do it, but just know you a four year degree in psychology. I think gets you nothing. You have, you have to go to grad school and it's, you gotta be, you gotta really like it and be committed to it. Uh, so that'd be my suggestion is like, just know you're going to go to grad school and you've got to be all in on this thing. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I can totally relate to that. I, uh, so I was actually a, a neuroscience major, uh, but, you know, obviously overlaps a lot with psychology. And I enjoyed it. I don't have a linear path towards clinical psychology. I actually wanted to become a dentist. So I was a neuroscience major. Yeah. And I was a sort of like a pre-dental major. And I actually went into dental school for about a year and a half before I decided that I did not want to do it and switched to clinical psychology after that. So going into college, I always had sort of this long-term goal of like, just knowing that I was just going to be in school forever. <laughs> but I think that for me is what it took to be able to just grind through it, get through college, get through grad school. You know, it's like, okay, I know that this is going to be a long haul. And I think sometimes people don't really think about that. So I think it's a, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. How did you, I know this is off topic, I'm just curious. So how, tell me about YouTube. How did you decide to do YouTube? Yeah, so that was super random as well. I, when I was looking at clinical psychology, I was trying to gather as much information as I could. So I was going online. I was actually calling a bunch of clinical psychologists in my area. Not a ton of them were taking my calls back, but there was one mm -hmm. that did call me back. And I was just trying to learn as much as I could. And so when I finally got into graduate school, I thought to myself, man, I wish that there was some sort of education field of like resource on YouTube where, you know, someone could like show people, hey, like, this is what you need to think about in your interviews yeah. and in your applications and all of these other things. And I didn't really see that on YouTube. And so I started doing it, didn't think anything would come out of it. And I just started getting so many questions, like people just started hitting me up. And yeah, yeah. I was like, all right, I guess I'll, I'll make a, I'll make some space out of this. Like this is, yeah, this is really cool. Smart. And I get to help people. Yeah. So, um, I know I actually found you on YouTube as well. And you have a incredible popular YouTube channel. I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that in terms of how, how that started with all of the other things that you're doing, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, similar kind of by accident. So I did a, um, so during COVID, you know, it was like locked away. And so I made a rule, like a, a rule in my house that everybody had to learn something to do each month. We had to learn something like my kid, one kid's going to learn how to draw or whatever. And I was trying to figure out how do I stay connected with clients that are not, um, mm. you know, not reaching out, they're not doing coaching. Everybody sort of like, you know, batting down the hatches. So I wanted to learn how to edit video. So I was making like little advertisements. Like I would do a, I would get on a suit and get on the Peloton and, and then I, or lift weights. And then I would send a video of me and I was like, 
I know you haven't seen me, but I'm still working. And I was like, make, I was trying to find funny videos. So I learned the skill of how to edit videos. And then my wife really liked Rachel Hollis. Do you know who Rachel Hollis is? I don't think so. She's like a, I... she's a personal develop influence, development oh, okay. influencer. And her and her husband were really like, I thought over the top about how great the relationship was. And this is, they're just, you know, they're just sort of pumping out right. personal development content. My wife loved it. And I was like, what, you know, whatever, do whatever <laughs> you want. But um, in at like halfway through, I don't know, like four months into COVID, yeah. Rachel and Dave Hollis, her husband got divorced. And my wife was like really upset about it. Wow. And so I made a, I, I go like, you gotta be kidding me. So I recorded a video. We're just reacting to whatever. Yeah. I, I don't know why, I, what made me do it. It's like, I'm just gonna record a video and just put it on YouTube. And that video did really well. It got like 30,000 views. Yeah. And it's just me reacting to this like, event, in pop, event in pop culture. And so, right. you know, I, another thing that I, like that I'm aware of in myself is that I get distracted easily. Like I start stuff and then don't keep doing it. And so I was like, I, I want to force myself to be committed to YouTube for a year. Let's see if I can stay dedicated to something for a year, um, yeah. which I did. And the channel just grew. Um, yeah. And it might like the goal for me is just make sure that you're recording at least one video a week, which I, it's now been, in, I mean, like three years. Um, and wow. it's grown pretty well and it's a fun thing. And, you know, I have the Pop Psych YouTube channel, which is the popular one. And then I started a David Colarossi PhD YouTube channel, which has not been a popular one, which I'm like less motivated to, to do. But um, yeah, you know, it's a hard, it's a, YouTube is a, a hard, it's a hard space to, it's a, to do well in. You know? it, it's such a, yeah, no, I, I hundred percent agree. And it's, I can relate too, because I actually, I do have a second YouTube channel as well. Oh, you do? I'm a, I do. I'm a part-time personal trainer. And so I do uh, virtual training sessions for people. I train people in person as well. So mm -hmm. I started that second YouTube channel and it hasn't done well at all. So yeah. it's like the, this algorithm, you just, you just never know. You never know yeah. what people are going to like, what people are not mm -hmm. going to like. You're just kind of go with the flow. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's really hard because I would do these videos on the David Colarossi channel. Um, and it would take me, like, I think, 15 hours. Now I'm working full time. It would take me a long time to record and edit. I'm trying to talk about whatever. I'm trying to talk about the, the whatever, I'm trying to think of what experiment I was doing, but some experiment and I was trying to react to this experiment, the, the bystander effect ex experiment. Mm. And then, um, uh, you know, 300 people see it after like six months and you're like, Oh my God, I spent all that time versus I could do a pop psych. I can go react to sister wives and it does much right. better and it's very low effort. You know what I mean? And so it's yeah, hard. It's, and then you feel like you're getting my, like I'm being distorted by the algorithm, which is a kind of a shame, right? And you want people to be able to just yeah, do what you want to do. Right. So, right. I'm aware of that happening. You know. it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I was, I was thinking about it too, like in terms of, you know, kind of what you, what you do for work and what you've kind of done for your career so far. Is there anything in particular that you've learned about either people or just, you know, organizations in general that you, you didn't really like 
that was that was new for you in terms of perhaps a certain quality or characteristic that was that was interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I have two. I have two things that stand out. The first was when you were, when you were saying the question. The first thing that stood out to me was when I graduated. Speaking of the imposter syndrome, I was like, I don't belong working with these companies at all. And I, one of my very first jobs was I was I hadn't done any coaching with this company, but they wanted me to do these. So when when um, it was a large general contractor, and they do these you know, if they're building a hospital or whatever, a lot of times the large general contractor will partner with subcontractors, you know, some, someone's going to do the, the, whatever, the concrete, someone's doing electrical, right. someone's doing HVAC. And they want to figure out how well are we partnering across these different companies that are all building this hospital. And so mm. I would make, they would survey everybody and I would write a presentation of, Hey, here's what communication looks like. Here's what, mm. and I, got this assignment and I'm sitting here doing like, okay, we got to do a regression and you know, well, what, yeah. like, what are the mediating factors that, right. And I yeah. submit and they're like, what the hell is this? All they wanted was mean. Like the, the, yeah. the, st the statistical analysis that they wanted was what you learn in fourth grade. Wow. They wanted a psychology. They wanted a psychologist to do it. They liked the PhD, but the, the statistical analysis was very wow. exceptionally basic. And wow. I think that that's a really important like it, it, dynamic is that we, I think psychologists were, were sweet. We, we, we so undervalue what we do that we're like, it has to be bigger and better and more complicated yeah. and more. There's gotta be nuance and yeah. let me just tweak this thing. And like yeah. in the business world, they're just like, just shoot me straight. What's happening. <laughs> they don't want. They don't want any. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. is really, really valued, and yeah. complexity and nuance are way are, are are a problem. You know, I I think that's fascinating because I I think even in my own program, you know, when they're teaching us like assessment, like psychodiagnostic testing or neuropsychological testing, a lot of times I feel like us as clinicians can write in a certain way where we're trying to impress one another. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're writing to the wrong audience. Like really what we're writing for is to the patients and to the clients. And we want to be as simple and as yes. harmonious as possible because we want to be able to communicate what's actually going on and we want them to be able to understand it. And it's, it's just interesting when I've worked with other medical professionals. So you have like, you know, physicians or nurse practitioners and it's like, they want the same thing. They want as simple as possible. They don't care. Yeah if your report is 12 to 15 pages long and it has like all of this elaborate, you know, terminology. So, yeah, you know, I probably <laughs> write, I think I, I write a lot of assessments. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, mm. I, I'm going to, I'm going to guess per year. I mean, it's probably, I would say that per month I'm probably writing like mm. 25 reports Wow. and I've been doing that for years. Right. I have never, wow. ever had anybody compliment me ever once on a well-written report never right if there's any if there's any critique positive is this makes sense thank you yeah. and negative is i don't quite understand what like you got this wrong or this doesn't seem right right no one cares right. at all what the writing is like and i used to spend so much time like trying to be eloquent and i had a one of my supervisors at cma was like what do you do? No one cares. <laughs> Just get the answer right. Like that's what we care about is getting the answer right. right. But the, you know, how fancy yeah. you are in your language is not valued at all.
Right. But you're right. Yeah. In academia, it is. And so you get people mm-hmm. bloviating about things in their writing. It doesn't really, <laughs> you know. Yeah. There was, there, there was one thing I also wanted to ask you about in terms of technology. Like I obviously, you know, technology is continually increasing in, in terms of people using it and also just it advancing. And now with AI uh, developing and evolving and things like that, is there, first of all, you know, do you use uh, certain forms of technology uh, for your type of job or do you see, like, how do you see technology being embedded within IO and and things like that? So I think, I mean, so I, the only one that, uh, what I, what I use now would just be chat GPT. I think it's helpful for Mm -hmm. some research. I don't know if you can always trust it, but it's helpful for research. What I do most sort of practically is if I'm writing an email, it's important. I'll put it in there and say, edit this. Like I have a hard time if I say, you know, some people will be like, just put the bullets and they're going to write it for you. I never like it. But if I write it, I'll say, will you clean up the grammar and the spelling? And I like it. I use it for that purpose. I think for IO psychology or for my business, I think it definitely has the, the potential to upset the assessment work that I do at the lower level. Because what they're paying for now is, you know, the, the tools that I use are not my tools are not CMA's tools. These are mm-hmm. tools that are readily available on the market. What they're paying for is to have a psychologist of value, look at, you know, four or five assessments at once and write a report. Right. I right. think there's a risk that people go, Hey, can this AI, can AI do that? And oh, I don't know that you. it can, but I think that there's the potential of at some level, what a psychologist is doing is just like when we're looking at multiple assessments, it's just pattern recognition, right? Like I right. sort of know what this, right. Look, I, I right. think that's a risk at, for lower level assessments when they're wanting to cut costs. I don't think at the executive level that I think they still like to have a human that's running somebody through a simulation or that's doing interviews and right. writing a very tailored approach or a, right. a, a, a tailored report. But I think it has the potential to disrupt the lower level stuff that we do. That's yeah, yeah. I, that's really interesting. I, I never thought about that. I I always imagine too, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it seems like if you split apart industrial and organizational, industrial is very much like you're working with people, you're working with individuals, whereas the organizational is sort of like the systems that are kind of either embedded in the company uh-huh. or in the organization. And so I for me, I if I'm kind of looking through the lens of someone who's in a company, I feel like those two things have to come together. And I feel like a psychologist can do that in a beautiful way of like bringing that technology and bringing the human, the humanity side of things together in a way mm-hmm. that, that makes sense. And so, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's interesting to see how it will kind of evolve and yeah, kind of progress. I don't know. And I went to uh, there's a conference called leading edge. It's an IO psych conference. I went to uh, in October. And what was really interesting is they were saying that the biggest risk for disruption is the development of assessments. You know, so right, right now, if you're making a tool, you have to conjure up all of these items. Right. And now you can use AI to say, hey, write me 70 items that are measuring emotional intelligence. And then and, and like when you make a tool, when I made a tool for my dissertation, I made up a bunch of items. And then I gave those items to uh, master's level psychology students and said, which of these items do you think measure these components of corporate culture? And right. they, I used their expert review. Now they're saying you can use another AI bot to evaluate 
first items that were developed by a separate AI. You take AI bot oh, one nice. to create the items, then take AI bot two to evaluate the items. And then you like you can do the whole thing via AI. And oh, my God. they're saying you can create a pretty robust tool and never have to do any re you're never having to research with people wow. and conversations. AI just does it itself. It's pretty crazy. Wow. That's insane. I can't even, yeah. that, that's yeah. mind blowing. I never yeah. even considered that. That's yeah, me neither. Like that could happen. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, in, in general, I think I've, I've learned a lot so much from this conversation, uh, David, I, you know, it's, is, is there anything that anything else that you'd like to share that you've learned from in this field that you're excited about or that you're doing that you want uh, people to know about? Yeah. Well, I think for your chair, <laughs> I don't know. This is not going to be a. I have a, I have a counterculture uh, view that we haven't talked about that I since because of what your channel talks about. I think this would be helpful. I think the I think that psychology, like I said before, I think psychologists really undervalue themselves, and I mm -hmm. think that the APA and the way that licensure happens um, is a racket. I think that it. I think that it. And I'm a licensed psychologist. I think that it really. Um, distorts the way that that training should happen and so the big one that stands out to me is this idea of a postdoc internship so you're going to graduate you're going to get a you're going to get a pre-doc internship you have to i get it you have to do that and then you're going to write your dissertation you're you have a phd and then they're going to say we're going to pay you the same rate that you just we just paid you this last year now that you have, you're a psychologist and you're going to do it again so, so that you get hours towards licensure and then you can take this test, which is a crazy assessment. And it's like, so for me, I did not get a postdoc. I just go, no, thank you. I'll get my own supervisor to supervise my work and you can do it on your own. And so I feel like there's a little bit of, I guess my recommendation would be, I don't think that it's always best to just follow the machine. Oh that, yeah. You know what I mean? That's cranking people yeah. out. I think, I think so right. that's my last parting comment. <laughs> No, I, I appreciate that honesty because I and I, I've actually heard it from other supervisors and other psychologists as well. Uh, even with the EPPP, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you have so many competent psychologists who end up taking that exam multiple times just because it's just like a weird, just like a weird test to study for, you know, and it doesn't and it's not indicative of their proficiency or competency at all. It's, as a it's psychologist. Of nothing. It's just, yeah. Yeah, right. And my recommendation um, is don't study for it. If, if you are, <laughs> if you are, if you're, if you're clinically trained, this is why, this is the way I approach yeah. it. If you're clinically trained, that helps you on that section of the test. The problem is the test is made because mm. psychology is a huge broad field and they right. say, Hey, health psychologists, what's important for your field? IO psychologists, what's important for yours? Counseling psychologists, yeah. what's important for you? Right. And so you end up getting this massive test where, you know, I'm being tested on, Parkinson's has nothing to do with the work that I do, but I have to know it's just yeah. too much. And so what I would say is just be really pragmatic. You have to get like a 70%, I think. The right. ethics are really yeah. important. You already know the DSM, so don't worry about it. Don't waste time studying that. If you know it well enough, you know, yeah. just breeze over the things that you don't know and just take it. And if you no. fail, just take it again the next quarter. Like don't burn, don't, I had colleagues that were doing like 40 hours a month studying for that thing. It's crazy. Wow. That's my, yeah. Opinion. No, I, again, I appreciate that. Cause I, you know, it, it, 
it's interesting for me, like when I first got into grad school, I didn't realize too that even when you were talking about the internship, it made me think about like for most programs, after they finish their the doctor or after they finish the four years or whatever, they, you know, they graduate. And like for us, it's like you go through the four years or the six years of school and then you go through the internship and then you don't graduate until after the internship. And then yeah. even after you graduate after the internship, you still have to fulfill the hours perhaps for licensure or for the postdoc. Right. right. But then, like you said, like you're still paid on a, a, a much lower salary, even though you know how to do the work just as yes. well as any other psychologist. And so I think those are good things to, to think about for people who are looking into this field. And I wish more people also were talking about those, the, yeah. you know, there's positive aspects of the field, but also the negative aspects too, that maybe, yeah, we can address trust. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I should say, I, I, I was too careful to be like, just don't study. I studied for it, but I would just tell you, it's not, when I was taking it, I was thinking, I don't, if I studied another 50 hours, I would never have known the answer to that question. So it's like, don't yeah. just trust in your right. training. I would take it as soon as possible after school because it's fresh in your mind and right. don't worry about yeah. failure. That's a better response than don't, than don't study. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, one last question. This is something I always end with for all of my guests, but you know, is there anything that you do to give back to yourself? Anything that you do for self-care or your mental health that, you know, it, it helps you to refuel and kind of re-energize and keep you going. So YouTube does that for me. Like YouTube is a very, like a, I get to, that's, that is outside of my job and it's a creative outlet. Like I, um, I am someone that, I th that has to have an exciting, like, I like the idea of something cool could happen. And mm. I feel like with YouTube, you every once in a while you do a video and it gets, it gets a lot of views and it's a really, it's like yeah. this, this fun thing just to happen. I feel, so it's like, a, you know, it's like you're in Vegas a little bit every time yeah. you post a video <laughs> and that right. that's exciting for me. And I play indoor soccer and run and coach my kids soccer team, that kind of stuff. Is fun also. Oh my gosh. Love that. Well, David, this has been awesome. I, I feel like I could talk about IO stuff with you all day. Uh, we'll have to have you on the channel again. This was such a pleasure. I'm happy to do it and I'll be easier to get a hold of next. <laughs> no, no, you're good. No, you're good. We made it happen. That's all that matters. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it so much. So, uh, until next time. <laughs> Perfect. Good talking with you.